All right, well, we'll go ahead and uh, get started. Let me pray for us, and we'll begin. Lord God, we are grateful for the rain. Thank you for um, causing your mercy to pour out on the earth and uh, providing for our needs um, through rain, through sunshine, um, all of it reminding us of your tender care and your love. We pray that as we um, think about your word, that we would be reminded of your your care uh, for your people Israel in the Old Testament and, and even how that um, extends and, and um, is put on display and even... Um, clearer and clearer ways through the coming of Christ and um, how this was your design for our good and for your glory. And uh, we pray that we honor you this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, we're in Deuteronomy 8. So Deuteronomy 8. Let's remind ourselves of a couple things. So what's been going on in Deuteronomy up until this point? What's that? Get rid of the Canaanites? Yep. So that was last week. It was talking about that as they go into the land, they are to wipe out the Canaanites who are in the land, right? Um, so we spent some time thinking about that. Uh, God's judgment, his justice through Israel, right? And we're reminded that God uh, later also brings his judgment on Israel when they disobey and engage in idol worship. So God is just. Every person deserves God's judgment, right? Uh, and mercy is undeserved by definition. We have to remember that. And so we see that happening, um, and we're reminded that that's what they are to do. And, and they're to do that um, because it's God's judgment, also because it's God's protection for those who are truly worshiping him, right? That they would not engage in idol worship like the pagans uh, already in the land were doing. All right, so um, what else is going on in Deuteronomy? History lesson. Yeah, history lesson. And uh, what's the purpose of the history lesson? Is it just so you can pass a test? Kind of. I mean, I guess it depends on what you mean by test, but what's... Yes, that's right. So we have a new generation. It's about to enter the land. The previous generation, through disobedience, failed to enter the land. And so we have a uh, set of sermons by Moses in which he is, he's giving history um, the history of their, the people's relationship to God, right? His redeeming work, reminding them of his promises even to um, Abraham and going all the way back there. And so he's reminding them all the, of all these things with the purpose of saying, you're about to go into the land, remember who you are and live like who you are. I mean, that has a meaning for us too, doesn't it, as Christians? Think about how much of the New Testament is, remember what God has done for you and who you are and live in light of that. Really? I mean, that's, that's the majority of it, isn't it? Um, so yeah, so we have this history lesson going on. So as we, we go through this, um, what we're seeing is they're being given motivations to keep God's covenant. And so this sermon we're in right now, which I think began in four or five, I don't remember, but, um, and it's going to go pretty good chunk of Deuteronomy is the second um, sermon, so to speak. And so in this section, what he's really detailing is the main part of that covenant agreement between God and Israel, which is that Mosaic law. And so he's going through that and he's reminding them what it, what uh, some of the major highlights of it. And he's saying, giving them motivation to keep it right, to obey what they read, what they've seen in the law. So that's kind of where we're at right now. Um, and, um, uh, chapter eight, verse one might be kind of, we could even say a good summary of what's going on in this section. So if you look at chapter 8, verse 1, so Deuteronomy 8, 1, 
He says, the whole commandment that I command you today, shall be, you shall be careful to do. So that's really kind of the main thrust. You need to do what God has said, right? You be careful to do it. That you may live and multiply. So the, the whole reason is the other generation perished because of their disobedience. And he's saying, you remember and obey so that you may live, right? You may experience the blessings of the covenant. Uh, and go in and possess the land that the Lord swore to give to your fathers. All of this command, all of this law, all of this stuff is based on what? God's relationship with these people, that he's redeemed these people, he's made promises to these people, right? And so that's what we're seeing God doing. God's people are to obey God's covenant, because they are his people, and they will live in God's place, right? God's rule over God's people in God's place. That really is a good chunk of the storyline of the Bible, isn't it? And so that's what we're seeing. Now, before we go too far into chapter 8, let me just um, ask you a question here. I want you to do word association. How do, you, how do you think maybe forgetfulness and pride can go together? How do those two ideas go together? Forgetfulness and pride. Forget our fallenness? Yeah, so if we forget our fallenness, then that is a form of pride because the reality is we're fallen. So to forget that is a prideful amnesia, right? Yeah, what else? They forget how they ended up getting to where they are. And yeah. They think, hey, this is by our own power. That's right. Strength that we did it good for us. Yeah, yeah. Seems like you read chapter 8 already, because that's basically what it's going to say. Yeah. So, so there's this uh, forgetting uh, what God has done, and then thinking, well, look at what we did, right? So you can see how pride and forgetfulness go together. Um, you know, we see this in human relationships, right? Someone is... Um, um, generous and, and really just giving a lot of their time and energy to love and help someone. And then there's almost a forgetfulness that can come, come over the person, you know, as if they're entitled now to everything rather than um, thankfulness, right? And so we see how pride, forgetfulness, uh, lack of thankfulness, all those things kind of go together, right? Um, that's true for Israel. It's true for us. And so that's really a lot of what we're going to see today. We're going to see that the people must remember, so not forget, remember God and his works, and that should give them a humility, that produces an obedience, a trust in God. And um, specifically, what he's going to focus on are two different things, that God tested them in the wilderness to humble them, and they should learn from that. So he's going to be looking back and saying, remember God tested you in the previous generation in the wilderness. Remember those, that humility that you learned in the wilderness. Okay, think about that. And then he's going to say, and you're about to go into the land of plenty, and you need to remember God there. So it's kind of this like, remember trials and what God taught you through the trials and remember God when you go into blessing, because both of those have um, temptations towards pride, blessing and hardship, right? And I mean, who of us hasn't done that, right? Where when you, you're going through hardship and the self-pity pride comes out, well, I deserve better than this. I mean, it's basically what we're saying when we're self-pitying, aren't we? I don't deserve this. I deserve something better. Now we may not think that way. We may just think, oh, nobody cares about me. Oh, this is hard. But really what we're focused on is me, right? And how I deserve better. And then pride, the other side of it, where we think of more of the arrogant form of pride is, is kind of this, well, um, you know, look, look at what all we did, right? We built these houses, we did all these things and we're wonderful, aren't we? Instead of thinking about God's grace. So, so they need the, to be warned on pride uh, and they should remember the past and they should look forward to the future with a humility that will grant them uh, an obedience to God. So a couple key words in chapter 8, words like remember and don't forget. 
Those ideas appear five, at least five times. Um, the idea of humbling through testing appears at least five times. And then this idea of the, these kind of opposite ideas of blessing and perishing appear at the beginning and the end. You kind of have blessing and perishing and, and the warning of perishing and the, the rem- reminders of blessing and the call to obey. So um, we have similar things, right, in our lives where we, we're tempted to forget God and his presence when we're facing hardship and that's a form of pride. We're tempted to forget God's presence in our blessings, which is also a form of pride. And so that's kind of the warning that we're going to get today. Okay? Uh, you see the outline. Well, I didn't give you that. We well, can kind of see the outline um, there. We have verses 1 through 10, remember the testing in the difficult wilderness. And then verses 11 through 20, don't forget when you are tested in the comfortable land. Don't forget God's goodness. All right. So any questions before we jump into this or, or comments related to just kind of the review Deuteronomy as a whole so far, or what's going to be kind of the big picture of chapter eight? Everyone's still trying to wake up. It's wet, wet outside, dark. Feel like you should still be in bed. All right. Well, let's look at uh, verses one through ten. Remember the testing in the wilderness, this difficult wilderness. And uh, the first thing we're going to see is God's loving care for His covenant people, Israel, in the wilderness should lead to a wholehearted obedience. That's where it should lead. Um, So let's look at verse one. I know we already read it, but I'll just read it again real quick. The whole commandment that I command you today, you shall be careful to do, that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land that the Lord swore to give to your fathers. So God's fulfilling his promises. He swore to give this land to their fathers. We can go back as far as Abraham and see that. Um, The people should live as his people, which means they must remember and obey what he said. He's the king. Remember we talked about the vassal treaty thing a while back? That's kind of what's going on here. He's the king. They're his people. He's going to protect, provide for them, and be glorified in that. And they're going to love and delight in him through obedience, right? And so that's, that's kind of being reminded there. Um, now look at verse 2. And what we see in verse 2 is they need to remember this time of testing and provision in the wilderness. Really, we see that in, in verses 2 through 5. There was a time of testing and, and times of provision in the wilderness when they wandered for 40 years. He says this in verse 2. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart whether you would keep his commandments or not. So verse two, they must remember the whole way that the Lord led them those 40 years. Uh, What was going on during those 40 years? Why did they have to wander for 40 years? What's what's that? They wouldn't go in the land. Yes, they wouldn't go in the land. So they refused to trust God and that resulted in direct disobedience, right? God says, go in and take the land. That's why I brought you here. And they said, uh, did you just bring us here to kill us? No, we're not going in to take the land. So they disbelieve God's promises and his power and they rebel, right? And so God sentences them to 40 years of wandering until what? That generation dies out. So it's a for- so part of this is a form of punishment for that previous generation, right? Um, it's also a form of testing and humbling, you can see that uh, when it uses the word humbling there, this idea of there, there's kind of a making them um, through, he's going to use the force of circumstances to cause these people to depend fully on him. And um, I think the older generation certainly can be learning that. The younger generation must learn that because they're the ones who are going to go into the land, right? So this is a time for them to learn that. So that's what I think what he means when he says to humble you. Uh, it's this time of testing. And this te- testing where he says to know what was in your heart whether you would keep his commandments or not. 
Okay, so we need to um, think about this for a second. Could this mean that God had no idea whether they were going to keep his commandments or not until, he, until they did it? Um, I, I suppose that could be an interpretation of this, but if we think about what the rest of Scripture tells us, um, we recognize that is not the correct interpretation of this, right? And in fact, the word to know here, where it says that God would know, is to know through experience. In other words, not that God doesn't know omnisciently what they're going to do, but in terms of the outworking in experiential time, space, and history, that's going to happen in such a way that evidence is physically there, right? Um, so let me just point out a couple of verses. I put these on your handout just to make it clear. God does know the heart of all people. He knows what's in their hearts, Luke 16, 15. And he said to them, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. Mark 2.8, Jesus perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves. So they haven't said anything yet. This is whenever Jesus heals the, the lame man. They bring him in the pallet and into the, the house where Jesus is teaching. And he, he heals him. He's talking to these religious leaders now. And they're questioning uh, Jesus. Because Jesus, first before he healed the guy, remember he said, your sins are forgiven. And so they're questioning in their minds, who does this guy think he is? I mean, he, who can say your sins are forgiven except for God? Right? It's not, it's not like he's saying, hey, you know, you stole some money from me and I forgive you. He's just blanket saying your sins are forgiven. That's different than like if I just forgive you. This is a, only, this is a God type forgiveness. And so in their, their hearts, they're questioning that. And Jesus, without them even saying a word, perceives in his spirit that they thus question within themselves. Jesus says, why do you question these things in your hearts? So does Jesus know exactly what's going on in their hearts? Yes. Acts 15, 8. And God who knows the heart... So we see again just a statement that God knows the hearts. 1 John 3.20, for whenever our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. So we could continue. I mean, there's tons of passages we could keep looking at. The point is God knows everything that's in everyone's heart. So when it says to know uh, by testing, the point is God is going to know in a way that is proven through time, space, and history when they actually do what he knows is, is already going to happen, right? It's going to be proven in such a way um, that they and, and think about it this way too. When you think about in the book of Revelation, when it talks about people being judged according to their works, this is not salvation by works, is it? Right? I mean, still salvation is by grace, but we are condemned because of what? Our sin, actual sin that we commit against God, right? And so, so we're going to be judged according to our works. Yes. So I think about the relationship between testing and. What's in a heart? Yeah. Maybe this is corny, but I thought of a little kid squeezing the toothpaste. Yes. We know what's in the tube by getting squeezed. That's right. And we find out what we're like. Yes. For God who squeezes us. Yep. That's good. Yep. Yeah. I think you read my notes because I had, I had that example in there as well. Yeah. This example. So when you think about, to, to, I think that's what you kind of get the picture of. The a squeezing of a toothpaste bottle shows what was inside the toothpaste bottle, right? Um, and so that's, that's what we're seeing. We're seeing um, that put on display. So God, God applies pressure through these circumstances, through these testings, and squeezes out of the heart evidence of what is already in the heart, which he knows is in the heart, but he's going to squeeze out that evidence. Uh, one commentator talks about the idea of to test you is there's two things that happen when God tests us. Uh, there is an evaluation going on in terms of, again, not that he doesn't know what's in our hearts, but a 
proving of that, a demonstration of that, right? An evaluation that goes into that. But then there's also this part that I think is helpful to remember is to influence us and train us to respond the right way. So you think about this too, like, um, like when you have like an athletic training going on, right? And there's, there's, you're at practice or something. The, the coach is doing a couple things. He's evaluating what's going on with his players as they demonstrate what's there. Now, obviously, this, this analogy isn't perfect, right? Because God knows everything. The trainer doesn't know everything. But there, there's this evaluation thing going on. But there's also a training aspect going on through the pressures of that training, right? There, there's, um, there's a growth through the discipline of that practice that is shaping. And so we see the adversity and the testing that goes along with adversity is, is God is doing those things in his people. He's, he's shaping them into humility through the testing, right? So you can remember this too. When you're facing trials, if you belong to the Lord, there's a shaping of your character through that testing to make you more like Christ. That's the New Testament picture of this, right? And so we, ha- we have to remember that when we go through these trials. Um, let's see, l- verses 3 and 4, you can see some of this. He gives some examples of, of some of the testing that was going on in the wilderness. He humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Your clothing did not wear out on you, and your foot did not swell these 40 years. So some pretty amazing things God did as they wandered through the wilderness. You see food being provided. Um, we take that for granted because when you're hungry, you can go to your pantry, most of you, right? Get food there. If, if that's empty, you can generally go to the grocery store. It's not too far usually. And get food. There's tons of food there, right? Um, so we, we have all these different things. And we, I mean, we have food, food that like, I mean, back in the day, you realize like you couldn't just get fruit any time of the year based on your location. But I, I mean, I grew up in a generation where we didn't think about that at all. I mean, I just assumed everything was always available because it was in the grocery store. Anyway, so I guess I'm just saying these guys are walking through the desert, right? They don't have like a home yet. I mean, they're wandering and they had food for 40 years. That's a big deal, right? Um, we can remember the people grumbled during this time of testing, Right. They said in Exodus 16, 3, would that we have died at the, at the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by meat pots and ate bread to the full. Um, and then he says, you brought us out in the wilderness to kill us with hunger. Um, so they grumbled. They didn't really trust God, right? That was part of the problem during this time of testing. Their, their hearts are being shown for what they are, that they were not trusting God. Um, and so, but God does provide them and he provides them with manna, something that they, he, he points out here, just something to show and highlight uh, God's, what it, what it is to remember God. They did not even know such a thing as manna existed because it didn't until God made it. So in terms of like humanly speaking, I think the point is they were tested and humbled in such a way that they, they could see on their own no way that their need would be met. They couldn't even imagine how their need would be met in terms of the way God actually ended up meeting it. When it happened, I mean, they wouldn't have thought, well, yeah, I, I saw that coming. I, I could I kind of I could envision that that was what was going to happen to bring the solution, right? So this is supernatural provision in the most obvious way from God when He gives them manna from heaven to eat. So God's been providing for them. Uh, the purpose of all this is what that He may might make you know that man does not live on bread alone, but man lives on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord, right? And so. Um, what does this mean? Well, 
uh, it, you know, God called them out of slavery, right? They didn't decide to just call themselves out of slavery, right? They didn't just say, well, we're, you know, we're, we're going to go ahead and walk out of here. Do it. God calls them out of that. So, he, so what, what's a fancy word for that? He redeems them, right? So he, buy, he brings them out of slavery. So if God calls them out of there by the power of his word, right? He gives the command and then he causes it to happen. Then they can live by every word that God speaks because if he can speak the word of deliverance from slavery, he's going to speak the word to provide what they need. If God calls them somewhere, he will provide for them where he's called them to be. That's the point, right? And I think that's what you see happening. So God's going to call them out of there. He's going to provide for them. Now, where somewhere else we see this um, happen in the Bible? This, this gets quoted. Does anyone remember? In temptation of Christ in the wilderness. Yeah, that's right. So Matthew chapter 4. Um, <clears throat> I'll, I'll go ahead and just read a section of that to you, but you can look it up later. Matthew chapter 4. Uh, verses 1 and through 3, Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. Okay, so I realize I haven't quoted the part yet. He's about to quote that, but I just want to set the scene here. So Jesus ends up in the wilderness for how long? 40 days, right? How long was Israel in the wilderness? 40 years, okay. Um, and um, who, who led Jesus into the wilderness? The Spirit, right? So God, the Spirit, leads him into the wilderness. Who led Israel out into the wilderness? I mean, we don't know if it's, but God did. I mean, it doesn't necessarily say directly Spirit, but God led them into the wilderness. Um, there's a time of testing for Israel. There's a time of testing for Jesus, Right? Um, you'll remember in the Old Testament, it talks, God talks about, he refers to Israel as my son who I brought out of Egypt. Jesus is the son of God brought out of, um, and G even brought out of Egypt. We read that too, right? Because remember they have to flee to Egypt at one point when he's a baby and then he's brought out of there. Okay. So you're seeing the connections, right? You're seeing connections here. So, um, he's out there and he's tempted and Satan tempts him. Basically, I, I think the temptation here is you're God's son and you're hungry. This doesn't really add up. I th you're God's son, he loves you, and you're hungry? Doesn't seem like he's doing a good job providing for you. Maybe you should take matters into your own hands. Maybe you should meet that need, that desire, that want. I would even say need, right, for food. Um, and how does Jesus answer? He quotes Deuteronomy 8. But he answered, in this is Matthew 4, 4, but Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And so in doing this, Jesus succeeds where Israel failed, right? So ultimately, we need this type of son because we, Israel failed and we failed, right? Every person has failed. Uh, Jesus needs to perfectly obey and that's exactly what he does. He's tempted and he he bears up under it and succeeds. And, um, and this is helpful for us when we face temptation because the situation may seem dire. It may seem like there's no other way except to give in to the temptation. But we need to remember what we need most is God's word, right? Just like for Israel, life support was God's word. Their life was literally what they would perceive hanging in the balance. But God had called them to be there. God was sovereign over their situation. And so what do they need to do? Cling to every word of God. God leads us out here. We must continue obeying God. We will trust that God, by the power of his word, will provide for our needs. 
That's what they needed to do. That's what Jesus did. And that's what we need to do. Um, and ultimately, we need to trust in Jesus because we fail to do that regularly. And we give in to temptation, right? So we, we need a Savior who perfectly obeyed. And that's exactly who Jesus is. So when you have a difficult, maybe you're in a difficult relationship, difficult situation, you're tempted to give in. Um, remember that these times of testing are times to show that God is sufficient. We can trust in God. Uh, the words of scripture are manna for our soul. And, you know, his word, is, his word is powerful. He is capable of changing our circumstances. And, but the issue is oftentimes we think that is the only solution. It's kind of like the manna thing, right? He gave you manna, which you didn't even know of. But we think, well, the solution has got to be something that I know of. It's got to be exactly the way I want it, which is you're going to take me out of the situation right now. But that's not always the way God's going to do it because he's testing you that he may see, prove what is in your heart, right? That he, and shape your heart to be humble, to depend on him. That's what he's doing in this testing. And so that's what we need now. We need to know that uh, God is the one we cling to. His word is sufficient for us. That if God says, I called you to be here, that he will provide for you. And that's true. So as a Christian, when you face temptation towards sin, God has called you out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. So you're exactly where God wants you to be when you are having to fight sin. So rather than just giving in, we should say, God, I, man doesn't live by, by bread alone, but by, by your word. You will give me the power to resist, right? And then at times where we do fail, God, you give me power to repent. Left to myself, I wouldn't repent. I would just keep right on walking, thinking everything was okay. So we need to rely on God in these situations. Uh, trust his word. Uh, one commentator, Craigie, says this. I thought it was just a helpful way to kind of summarize some of this. He says, when a period of testing is entered, man's self-sufficiency is undermined. For his own ability to provide for his needs is removed and he must learn again that his existence, physical and spiritual, can only be grounded in God. So that's what God's doing in testing, isn't he? In, in testing, he's showing that we cannot rely on self-sufficiency. Because again, for them, it, it could have been, right? They could they can maybe think of ways that God's going to provide. But he says, I gave you manna which you didn't even know about. Because he's going to prove that it's going to be him. That's what testing is intended to do. It's intended to lay you low to where there is no, there's nothing in self anymore. I'm not depending on self anymore. I've looked at the situation. I can do nothing. Right? So uh, rather than push against testing and hardship, we need to learn the lesson, which is humble ourselves and trust God's provision. That's what we need to learn. When we face those, whether it's relationships that are difficult, whether it's uh, just circumstances that are difficult, financial issues that are difficult, we could go on and on and on. Okay, so um, back to Deuteronomy 8. He gives two commands in verses 5 and 6 as a result of what he just got done saying. Verse 5 says this, um, Know then, so that's the first command, know. Know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, the Lord your God disciplines you. So you shall keep, that's the second command, so you shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God by walking in his ways and by fearing him. So first of all, know. Well, I think, what, what, what is it that they're supposed to know as a result of the trial that God brought them into to test them and then the provision that God brought to meet their needs? What are they, what are they supposed to know as a result of that, according to verse 5? God provides, but not only that, the disciplining that he did to them didn't destroy them. Right. Yeah, because why? So, yep, that's right. So think about it this way. When we think of the word discipline, how do we typically think about it? In what context? Punishment, Punishment right? Um, 
Biblically speaking, how should we think about it? Was that? Training. Training, right? Yeah. So, and, and so if we think about the, um, okay, so back up for a second here. Does, does this passage get, um, I don't know if it's actually quoted or just alluded to anywhere in the New Testament. The answer obviously is yes, because the way I just phrased that. But does anyone know where? Hebrews. Hebrews, right? Yep, so Hebrews chapter 12. I'll read those verses real quick and see how this fits in as to what they're supposed to learn. Uh, this, I think this just kind of exposits what this passage, this verse says. That this, this does the work for me here. Hebrews 12, verses 5 through 8. And have you forgotten, so he's speaking to New Testament believers, the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom this father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which, we all, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. So what's the lesson they're supposed to learn when he says um, what God was doing to them? It's you're, God's treating you as, as his son. So the, the discipline, the hardship, was it was discipline to make you more into what you needed to be. Kind of like how a parent should, when they lovingly do discipline, rightly do discipline, the goal is to help shape the child or at least encourage the child to go in directions that are right and good and healthy, right? And to the child, sometimes they, th- they think, this hurts, I don't like this. But when it, it, the motivation, when rightly done, is what? It's love, right? It's, it's as a father would discipline his son, and so that's what you have happening here. So I think they're supposed to learn from this time of testing and then God meeting it with provision is God is your father and you should live like he's your father. You should humble yourself, look to him for what you need, right? Obey him, all the things that a son should do to a father, recognizing his wisdom, his goodness, his power, all those different things. So um, yeah, so there's a lot more we could probably say about discipline in Hebrews 12, but we'll, we'll leave it at that for now. Um, so, you know, practical application here. What sort of things has the Lord or is the Lord disciplining you over? You don't have to answer out loud. Um, how have you received it? We need to recognize that discipline is hard, but it is a gift of grace, right? Children, children left with no form of discipline, never corrected, that's not love. That's not going to end well, right? And so this is love. And if you were, so there's something actually, I've said this before, there's something more scary than God raining down a firebolt of lightning on you when you disobey. It's God never doing anything in response to it. Why? Because that shows that you're not his son. Right? It's kind of like if I'm at a playground and I see one little kid acting up, doing all sorts of crazy stuff. The fact that I don't correct him doesn't prove he's right. It just proves that he's not my son. My kids may not like it when I correct them, but it shows that they belong to me, that I'm their father, and that I love them, and I have um, wisdom to offer them. So that's what we see happening here. So the, the, the first commandment is they're supposed to know that. They're supposed to, if you want to remember things so that you don't get, go off the rails later, you got to remember that God is your father, and that through trials, he's disciplining you. That's how you should receive trials. Second thing is to keep his commandments. So not, not just remember what God was doing there, but keep his commandments. And um, how, how is that supposed to look? What are the, there's two things here that they're going to do. Um, I, sh- I shouldn't say do. One's an action and one's maybe more an attitude um, when they're, if they're going to keep his commandments. 
Yes, that's right. Yep, so the action is walk in his ways, and then the attitude is by fearing him, right? Have a proper respect, a, 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 a fear of um, displeasing our good father, right? Uh, des- and then the opposite side of fear would be desire. What's the desire? Desire to please God, to, to walk in God's ways. And so that's what we see happening there. Okay, let's move on to verses seven through nine. It's imperative that they learn to humble themselves. So that's the lesson they're supposed to learn from the past through the trials that they face in the past. And it's imperative that they learn that lesson, that they are humble uh, before God so that they're gonna keep his word as they enter the land. So these verses are about to transition us into, hey, you're, you're going into the land. That's why you need to remember the past. That's why you need to learn those lessons. So look at verse seven. For the Lord your God is bringing you into a land, a good land, a land of brooks of water, of fountains and springs flowing out in valleys and hills, a land of wheat and barley, of vines and fig trees and pomegranates, a land of olive trees and honey, a land which you will eat bread in which you will eat bread without scarcity, in which you will lack nothing, a land whose stones are iron and out of whose hills you can dig copper. So, They need to keep the course of what is laid out in verse six of obeying because they're going from wilderness testing to garden testing. They're about to go into a a nice land, but they're still gonna be testing. So they they need to learn that that humility lesson from the time of the wilderness. And um, God is bringing them there. So, you know, I guess we could also say it's not only looking back, it's also looking ahead should remind us to obey God, to trust God. I think you kind of see that here. Um, We can remember his promises. So, you know, just as much as we might, we, we, we remember what God's done in the past delivering us um, when we're facing trials. We remember that in the middle of the trial, we're his son or his daughter. That's why he's disciplining us. It's for our good and his glory. We also can look to the future though and say, God is bringing us into his ultimate rest. And that's true for the New Testament believer too. Here it's the physical land Israel's being brought into. They are, they are the, they're gonna picture the kingdom of God on earth in the old covenant as a nation in a particular place. In, in the new covenant, what we find is the rest we're moving towards is what? The new heavens and new earth. There's gonna be a millennial kingdom where Israel is gonna have, uh, they're gonna express something here on the earth, right? But the new heavens and new earth will be the ultimate place of rest that we're looking to. And so we find that we should look ahead to that too. So what an application would be, not only look to the past, not only remember God's relationship with you in the present, but look to the future, right? Reflect on heaven when you're facing times of trial. Um, I think that's a good habit to get into. Uh, We could say more about that, but we probably should keep going. So verse 10, the result, if they will keep humble and follow God, is what? And you shall eat, as verse 10, you shall eat and be full, and you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land he has given you. So uh, they're going to receive these good gifts that God's going to give them. Um, God is not anti-enjoying his creation. He is anti-worshiping his creation, right? Good gifts are good gifts. They're terrible gods, but they're good gifts. And so they should enjoy them, and that's part of the blessing of walking in God's ways, specifically under this old covenant for them, right? That's, that's one of the ways they would experience that. And um, they are also, though, supposed to bless the Lord for his gifts, worship God. So they're going to they're gonna enjoy God's good gifts. They're going to receive it. In other words, God is going to do them good, and God will be worshiped. That's really the result of them doing what God is saying here right? So we can think about that for us too, right? Um, our good and God's glory. We say that a lot. That's true. That's what God does for his people. It's for their good and for his glory. Those two things are not at odds. Um, our good is bound up in the fact that God is glorious, right? He is our ultimate good. He is our ultimate treasure. So his glory being put on display is his best form of showing kindness to us. And so that's what we find um, 
being pointed to here as well. So he's transitioning now into the into verses 11 through 20. And uh, Moses, is, as he's preparing them to enter the land, they need to be warned of the danger of forgetting God in the land. They should have learned the lesson from the past. They don't want to forget that, but they also need to be warned about the future. And so the possibility of forgetting God in the land and not blessing God is really the theme of the next section that, that we're about to enter into, verses 11 through 20. So let's talk about the danger of forgetting God. Look at verses uh, really 11 through 17, but I'm going to read 11 through 16. That's all one sentence for us, so it's a long sentence. So let's um, read that. Take care lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his rules and his statutes, which I command you today. Lest when you have eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them, and when your herds and flocks multiply and your silver and gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, then your heart be lifted up and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, who led you through the great and terrifying wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground where there is no, was no water, who brought you water out of the flinty rock, who fed you in the wilderness with manna that your fathers did not know, that he might humble you and test you to do you good in the end. So again, we see it begins with this take care idea. We see take care, be careful, be aware, um, beware. All those appear several times. We, we see that happening over and over again. Um, so let me just make one application on that before we move on. I, we've already made the observation that it appears over and over again. Here's a good application. Um, we live in a war zone. This is true for Israel, and it's true for us. Like, they're literally about to enter into a war zone. Um, but Satan is still continuing to prowl around, right? I mean, that's still true. And uh, we still have our flesh to contend with, the world to contend with. So we ought not go around pretending like we're just on a vacation and just chilling and everything is safe and enjoyable and whatever, right? Um, we're in a war zone constantly. When you come home from a long day and you shut the garage and you sit down on your couch, it's not like Satan's taking a break. It's not like your flesh is all of a sudden fully subdued or something. My point is, Everywhere we go, we're in this side of heaven, we're in a war zone. So the beware language is appropriate for us too, right? Take care, be aware, be alert. Um, I mean, you see that repeated in the New Testament. And so we ought to recognize that too. Now, by God's grace, I mean, he does give us times of rest. But my point is we have to recognize, remember where you live, right? You live in a place where you do have to beware of sin, temptation, especially of forgetting God. Because that's the ultimate danger here is that we would forget God. And when he says forgetting God, because that's his point, right? Take care lest you forget the Lord. It's not, um, I don't think it's that they would forget that there's such, such a person as God. I think it's just the everyday practical living as if he didn't exist. Like you might say he exists, but then you just live kind of like it doesn't really matter if he exists or not. Right? You don't stop to thank him for anything because you just assume everything is by your own doing. Well, of course I'm eating today. I work today. Well, I mean, yes, that's generally the way God's designed it. It is good and right to work, um, right? We, but at the same time, if God doesn't provide, we would have nothing whether you worked or not. So we could go down the list and give other examples. Um, but we need to remember the, the Lord. We need to remember him in daily life. So, you know, when you struggle with uh, temptation towards sinful anger, am I forgetting that God is sovereign over the people or situation that's tempting me to be angry? When I'm tempted towards lust, am I forgetting that God is the all-seeing creator who gives exactly what I need and I don't need to covet more and more and more of something that God has maybe said no to? 
Um, greed, same thing, right? Am I forgetting that everything belongs to God? We can keep going down the list of examples, but you get the point. We don't want to forget God. When we forget God, we end up in bad shape. Um, in verses 12 through 13, we, we had just read, um, we recognize that times of plenty are quite dangerous for forgetting God, aren't they? Uh, commentator Craigie again writes this, the anticipation of the good land promised by God had been a source of strength to the Israelites during their time of testing. Um, Following the conquest, however, the good land itself could become a source of testing for the Israelites. And so we recognize that, um, that we, can, we can face danger not only in trials, but also in blessings. Uh, notice how insidious pride is. What do they say about the houses? Did you guys pick up on that? Verse. Yeah, so there's, there's kind of this... Um, uh, less when you have eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them. So this idea of um, you're going to build houses. So what, what is insidious about pride is um, that God has made it such that we actually do do things. We, we move, we build things, we think, right? We do all these things. To the, it should be done to the glory of God, but in our pride, what do we do with that good gift that we're able to do stuff? We take the ability that God has given us to do stuff and we twist it into self-aggrandizement, right? Self-sufficiency, self-whatever. I mean, you put self in front of any word, and that's pretty much what you get with pride. And so that is the danger, is we, we take these things, and we twist it, and we say, hey, look what I did, instead of realizing uh, who made you, right? Who takes care of you? Who is sovereign over every privilege and responsibility and thing you have? So what is the antidote? Well, verses 14 through 16 kind of point us in that direction, so notice in verse 14, he says, you, you, all this stuff's going to happen and you need to be careful lest your heart be lifted up and you forget the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land. So there can be this forgetting that the, the, the lifting up is, is, I think, another word for pride there. You lift yourself up, you lift your heart up. But what is the solution? Well, he goes into reminding them of what God is, of who God is and what he's done. Again, so he kind of goes back again and, sa- and says, God redeemed you. God owns you. So who do you have to thank for anything? It's God. So he keeps pointing them back to remembering what God has done. Which reminds us as well, why is it such a big deal to forget God? Because we, ha- we have nothing without God. Right? Our very existence depends on God. And so th- there needs to be a remembering of God, a remembering of his faithfulness. Um, and we need to not be arrogant. We need to not think so much of ourselves. Um, <clears throat> okay, so importance of remembering God. Verses 17 through 18, he summarizes the, the dangerous uh, temptation and testing that they're going to face. So here's kind of the summary. Verse 17, beware lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand has gotten me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth. Why? That he may confirm his covenant that he swore to your fathers as it is this day. So again, we see the beware type language there. Lest what? Lest you take God's gifts as if they are returns on your wise investments. Right? In other words, of course I have all this stuff. Look at how wise I am. Well, you might be wise. If you are wise, it's because you're heeding God's word. Who gave you that wisdom? God gave you that wisdom. Who gave you a heart to embrace that wisdom? God gave you a heart to embrace that wisdom. I mean, everything is going to go back to God. Every good and perfect gift comes from the Father of lights, James says. And so, prideful amnesia is dangerous, and I think he's just warning them, don't fall into that. 
right? And, and so, so how do we fall into this? Well, it's forgetting, which is kind of a, a process of things like um, less and less gratefulness, right? I mean, that's, that's a step down the path to forgetting God. Because if, I, if I'm not thankful to God, I'm subtly saying either A, I deserve this, maybe God did give it to me, but I deserved it, or B, I don't really need God, I kind of got this on my own, right? So you can see that that is a step down that direction. Um, I'm sure we could think of other things that would be steps in that direction. But we need to recognize that everything we have is from God. So we need to come up with ways to remember um, the Lord. And again, not, not just remember facts, although we need the facts. We need to know the, the truth statements about who God is, but we need to remember by believing those things. So here's a couple things I would suggest. Um, reading his word and praying, obviously. Why? Because I, I need to hear from his, what he says. Prayer, I need to humble myself to ask him for things, to thank him for things. Um, keeping a thankful list, I won't belabor that because we've talked about it in other settings, but having a list of things you're thankful for can be a method to remember God and his goodness. Um, being generous is a way to remember God and his goodness, isn't it? Because I'm basically saying this belongs to God, right? Uh, it's, it, and he intends for me to meet other people's needs with it. Um, we could come up with other things. We'll, we'll keep moving here. Verses 19 and 20, here's the consequence of if they would forget God. Verse 19, and if you forget the Lord your God and go after other gods and serve them and worship them, I solemnly warn you today that you shall surely perish. Like the nations that the Lord makes to perish before you, so shall you perish because you would not obey the voice of the Lord your God. So this is a dangerous path of going from um, not thinking much about God, forgetting him, lack of gratitude, self-reliance to what? Ultimately, what are they, what is, where does all that lead when you forget God? What is that? Death. Yeah, that's right. At least to death because it makes you engage in idolatry, right? Whether it's self, whether it's the created things God has given, there's going to be something that replaces God when I forget God. This isn't going to be like a, just kind of emptiness when God leaves, when I, when I forget God. I'm either worshiping God or I'm going to worship something else. Could be me, could be you, could be something else God's created. We're going to worship something or someone. And so we, we see that, that this danger of not thinking much about God, forgetting God, lacking gratitude, self-reliance, idol worship. That's kind of the trajectory we end up on when we forget God. And so this is a big deal because, like Larry was just saying, the, the end of that is judgment, perishing for the Israelites, right? That's what Israel is going to face. And in fact, they, they do go down that path, don't they? And God will remove them from the land because of that. And so we ought to heed that warning. And um, I think, you know, we, we have warnings in the New Testament too. I think they're there because true, genuine, born-again believers hear those things, and they are the means by which God causes us to persevere in the faith. When I hear those warnings, that's, and it's all of God's grace. I mean, he put the warning there and he put the new life in my heart that responds to that warning and, and he empowers all the work I do in heeding that warning. So it's not that I don't have any work to do, it's that all of it's of grace. But the, the point is we have to heed these warnings and I think that would be maybe the New Testament application of this, right? Um, so I, I think we find that there's gonna be a warning here that they will perish. And you can contrast that with what we saw earlier in verse one, uh, in the end of um, verses seven through 10. There's all this stuff about uh, living and being blessed, but then there's the warning 
Uh, if you act like the other nations, you'll be judged like the other nations. So God is just We're reminded of that, kind of even like we saw in chapter 7. Um, it's not just the Canaanites who are going to face judgment if they go full-blown idol worship. Israel's going to face that too. Um, so we see, we see God's uh, faithfulness to his glory, to his holiness, and the people need to remember that. So the, the application I have here, I just come up with a couple things you might take away from this. Some questions to ask yourself. How are times of trial and triumph a testing ground for you? And then what temptations are you prone to in times of trial and triumph? It's good to think of both of those, right? I th- hopefully this, this passage reminds you that trials and triumphs are both times that we will be tested and humility is the key to succeeding. A total dependency on God, a total heartfelt worship and remembrance of who God is. That's the solution. But we need to, you need to know your own heart and where your own heart finds temptations in those things. Uh, how can you be careful to do all that God commands and how does remembering fit into that? So we talked a little bit about that. And then finally, what can you learn from Jesus's time of testing and temptation in Matthew 4? So that may be good to go read that passage and meditate on that. So that is chapter 8. And um, yeah, it's an encouraging chapter. When you think of God's grace, you think of his goodness, right? So any uh, concluding thoughts, questions as we wrap up here? Yeah. Interesting how, you know, you were talking about how Israel had, you know, the picture that I saw was that, yes, it was God's correction to Israel, but when he, that, that part you were talking about how he provided them the manna, like Mm -hmm. his provision for them throughout those 40 years. What I saw was God literally revealing his name mm-hmm. to them. Yeah. Oh, Jadaran. Yeah, that's right. And for them in their heart, like literally, and the whole front and back of the Bible is about the posture of your heart. Yeah. And immediately when I saw that picture, I saw when Jesus was crying out and praying and telling the Father, I've revealed your names to them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, it's the same message from front and back. Yeah. That it's your heart posture. That's right. And he wants to continue to reveal that manifestation of his name over your life. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. So, our, yeah, our heart related to God is the key, right? It's not just behavior matters, but it's because really the heart is what matters, right? Um, so, yeah, we could, yeah, there's a lot we could talk about there, but that's good. Good. All right. Well, we'll close. If you have any other questions, feel free to, um, Come up, chat with me afterwards, or email them to me. God, we're so thankful for uh, this time that we've had in your word. Thankful for um, your provision for us and that you are our Father. God, help us to remember that when we face times of of testing and trial and even temptation, uh, that you intend to do us good through those things as we cling to you. Help us to cling to you, to humble ourselves before you, to remember that we are yours, that you've redeemed us, and that your testing reveals that we are your children rather than um, an abandonment by you. Um, God, help us in times of blessing to remember your, your provision, your care, um, and to give you all the glory and all the thanks and to live in a way that shows that we fear you and trust you. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.